Good morning and welcome to Wolverine's Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Anita J, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, 2017. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are in Bill's story on page four, the very last paragraph, beginning, we went to live with my wife's parents through two paragraphs ending periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. The first paragraph read for context only and the comments focused on the second paragraph read. Today's readers are for the 12 steps, Stacy T, 12 traditions, Chris G, and readers of the text this morning are Janice B, Dion R, and Devorah S. The share ID number for yesterday, Tuesday, February 7th, is 9577. 9577. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Uh, OA's fifth tradition states, Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And now I will ask Stacy T to read the 12 steps for us. Good morning, Stacy. Good morning, Anita. Thank you so much for doing service. My name is Stacy. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater in Cleveland. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 
11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thanks, Stacy T. I'll now ask Chris G. to read the 12 traditions for us. Good morning, everybody. This is Chris G., compulsive overeater in Connecticut. The 12 traditions. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Number two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting others or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought to never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. And 12, Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me do service, and I pass. Thanks so much, Chris G. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass, and then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Now today we resume our study of the big book uh, at the bottom of page four, the very last paragraph beginning, 
we went to live with my wife's parents. And that paragraph is just for context only. The second paragraph, ending periods of sobriety, which renewed my wife's hope. That's found on the very next page, page five. So we're going to focus our comments on that second paragraph, and I will ask Janice B. to start us off. Thank you, Anita. Good morning, visionaries. This is Janice B., Recovered Compulsive Reader in Vermont. Thank you, God. We are here. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcomed hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly and I began to waken every very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would get would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Okay, so um, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And I, I, I think of that as like getting to zero. Um, you know, food, food at one point, in my eating was fun and it was exciting and um, there were no problems. Uh, you know, I didn't have any remorse or regret or depression about my eating behavior. But, and, and if it was a scale, it would get me up to, you know, it could get from zero to a hundred, you know, it could be great. But, um, but when it ceased to be a, it, it it never gets better. It always gets worse, and it got worse. You know, and my eating um, got so that when I when I, I actually what got worse was um, because it wasn't about eating and food. It was about um, I, I was looking to food to solve my living problem. And my living problem never got better because I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know how um, I had messed up thinking. Uh, and I was um, never connected with, uh, with, with people, never felt a part of always felt alone, was depressed, and I looked to food to solve that, to give me, um, 
to give me some excitement and some fun. And and it doesn't doesn't work. It it only got worse. And um and there were periods where, you know, I would um when I was focusing on food and trying to control it and it seemed to get not seemed to, it got more out of control whenever I tried to control it. And I couldn't I couldn't meet my expectations of myself. And um and that kind of thinking would be so depressing it would mm. screw me into the ground more than I was before and I would be I would be eating really dis- destructively, shoving as much popcorn into my mouth as I could it would be falling out and I I recognized how destructive I was with eating. And um and and he says at the end I could control the situation and and the what is the situation? The situation I think he was talking about was his drinking, you know, and but that's that's only that's only that's that's not the problem. The problem was my thinking and my way of living. And when I and until that until that problem gets addressed in the rest of the steps, um, I was never successful um, with putting food down in OA, working the tools and all of that. It was only until the the living, the spiritual um, solution was addressed. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Janice. Um, now we're going to open it up um, for three minutes. We're going to go around and, uh, and um, speak on the second uh, on the second paragraph. Melanie C. Melanie C. Janice M. I thought I heard Sally up way up at top underneath Carlin here. Sally A. Tina S. I just wanted to see if I missed anybody. Chrissy G. Harlan G. Sally A. Melanie C. Janice M. Duel and Tina S. Anna K. All right. Let's let's kick off with this. This is a nice list. Janice B., why don't you start us here? Good morning. I mean, excuse me, Chrissy G. Chrissy, press star one. Well, while we're waiting for Chrissy, Harlan, are you on deck? Sure, sure. Thank you, Anita, <laughs> and thank you for to Team Wednesday for all your service. Let's take a look at this paragraph on page five, and let's see the ugly, horrible progression of the illness 
on page one at the very bottom, Bill is saying about himself, I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. Let's take a look at page three. For the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way, I had arrived. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont. He's living on Park Avenue. He's making tons of money. He's, the dar- he's one of the darlings of Wall Street. My judgment and ideas, still on page three, were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. Now let's take a look at page five. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. I went as a child from eating after school, eating at lunch, overeating, whatever, to an adult who compulsively overate from the moment I came to until the moment I passed out. Bathtub gin, remember, this is the period of time, not only during the Depression, but also during Prohibition when you made your own liquor. Two bottles a day and often three got to be routine. Look at the progression of his drinking. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This is the guy that was a very wealthy New York City stock speculator. Now he's lucky if a small deal would net a few hundred dollars. He says he began to shake. He began, excuse me, this went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. He's got delirium tremens now. The DTs are overtaking him, and the heart is a muscle. Once it gets affected, it's oiveus mer. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required. The key word here is required if I were to eat any breakfast. He's got alcoholic gastritis. He can't bear the pain of eating, and he's 40 pounds underweight. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. What's he doing there? He's going on what we would know as a diet. He is trying to control his drinking while he's drinking. He's going on a diet. And there are times, because Lois and him, they don't know the nature of alcoholism. So if he hasn't drank for, say, three days or two days, whatever it is, he feels horrible. But she and he are getting encouraged that maybe this could, ha- this could work. So it's a- notice that it doesn't say it renewed my hope. It renewed my wife's hope. Why did it renew his wife's hope but not his? Because he's feeling much, much better when he's not drinking. He's feeling fear better. He's feeling anger better. He's feeling like killing himself better. He's feeling jealousy. All these feelings are feeling better when he's not drinking. But since Lois isn't feeling these things, her hope is getting renewed. And this was what it was like for me when I was dieting. My friends would get all excited that I'm finally getting it. I'm losing weight. But I know in my heart that this isn't going to work because I can't stand the feeling of not eating. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks so much, Harlan. Chrissy, are you back? Chrissy G? You there? 
All right. Well, then we're going to move on to Sally A. Good morning, Sally. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you for your service. This is Sally A. in New York, a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm so happy to say this morning. And, um, of course, Carlin has said a lot, but I would like to focus in on these words, these three words, I still thought. For me, this is a very key concept, my thinking. What was I thinking when in the food, as opposed to what I'm thinking when not in the food? I still thought I could control. And that is a very powerful, powerful few words that describe my sick, twisted thinking that I still thought an ongoing concept running parallel to the conversations that came out of my mouth was a backdrop in the background, a parallel conversation occurring in my mind. And that is the conversation that I believe he's talking about. I still thought I could control the situation. I thought I could control when I took that triple somersault dive back into the quicksand of food. And for me, bathtub gin apparently is pizza because it's always pizza that I go straight, straight back to. It's cheap. It's fast. I don't have to make it. It's on every corner. I still thought after so many years, I could control the situation, my eating. And there were periods of sobriety, not recovery. There were periods of sobriety, dry drunkenness, white-knuckling periods, which renewed my wife's hope, not his hope, because he knew down deep he was in deep trouble, and he sensed his hopelessness. Thanks for letting me share with that. I pass. You're up. Did you call me? I'm sorry. Melanie. No, Melanie. Sorry. You're good morning. Yes. (laughs) You're up. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much uh, for your service here today, Anita. My name is Melanie C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater calling in from Oregon this morning. I kind of went up above this that you are sharing this morning to take a look at the, the things that I could identify in as an eater, as a compulsive overeater. So I was really looking at the things that he was putting into his mouth. And then the subsequent will to continue to fulfill his life through striving and thriving and and um, and what the condition of that mind must be like to be receptive to development to um, any kind of of good well constructive thought coming through so I looked at the things about um, the bottle a bathtub gin well an average bottle of bathtub gin is 25.5 ounces what about a tumbler 
16 ounces. He had to have 16 ounces plus a dozen bottles of beer, which is 12 ounces each. And one bottle of beer is equivalent to 1.5 ounces shot of any kind of booze. And at 180 pounds, you are legally drunk after five drinks. And look at what he put into his head. Look at what he put into his head. Now, where am I going to get any good, decent, developing thoughts over the course of my life from the time he was 22? I started at about two or three years old to develop into a life that was going to give me any perspective, any way in which to pattern some sort of straight line down the road. There's no straight line down the road. Absolutely no straight line down the road. Here's a picture of what Melanie would have. A huge family-sized bag of Doritos with 32 ounces of sour cream and 16 ounces of salsa, one sitting, followed by... Um, a Jethro Bodine-sized bowl of cereal with milk and bananas in it, followed by a pot of instant potatoes with butter, salt, and cheese, followed by, followed by, followed by from a very early age. It wasn't quite that much at two or three when I remember, but it was constant, and I was a grazer over and over and over. And then I would still be looking in the cup cupboards to concoct something else. I would go through what seemed like food items to things that were basically non-food items, throwing anything down my throat, throwing anything down my throat. And I really felt like I could feel the, the food at the top, and the top of my throat and the back of my tongue because I kept pushing it down, pushing it down. I had no idea. There was no mechanism to tell me when I was full. I had no idea what was too full, too rich, too sweet. Bah! Are you kidding me? It didn't exist. It didn't exist for me. I was in no condition in my mind to be able to have anything come through with any kind of sanity. From that point, when I started that type of eating, became the beginning of my insanity. This came in, in such ways I still feel like that he had some sort of sanity there. I had none. But I was just amazed at the amount of booze that he put down his body just to be able to get up to have breakfast. And it didn't stop. It continued, continued, continued. And we felt like we could build some sort of life on that. That just is stunning to me, absolutely. And with that, I pass. Thanks so much, Melanie. And now, Janice M., good morning. You're next. Well, well, good morning to you, Anita J. and uh, everyone. My name, <clears throat> pardon me, is Janice M., and I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive eater. Wow, everybody was so right on that. I don't know what I have left, except that a luxury um, is something that, you know, is really not needed. But with my eating, um, I was required to eat especially if I binged the night before, I would get up with all that uh, poison still in my stomach that I required. It was required. I was hooked. <clears throat> this is showing how, you know, um, I don't even know about the powerlessness yet. I, I'm just knowing that, you know, this is a painful, painful way to live, um, to be hooked on, you know, I don't even open my eyes. I did not even open my eyes in the morning, but I would say, oh, get me the donuts, get me the donuts. And then, of course, my son would say, Ma, you told me not to get the donuts if I asked you. I said, get them, get them, get them. I mean, the child was neurotic. He didn't know what to do. Um, because, you see, I didn't know that I crossed the line from a heavy eater to a compulsive, a real compulsive overeater. But I was still selfish, like he was. He, you know, Bill, um, 
you know, we get a little bit of money. Remember what he happens to Bill when he has money in his pocket. Um, he would, sure, he'd pay bills. Where did he pay the bills? At the bar in the delicatessen so that he could get some more drinks, not rent. Don't forget, he's still living with his um, in-laws. <clears throat> he wouldn't pay the rent, but he'd go to the bars and pay, pay his bills um, so they wouldn't throw him out. Um, and of course, it's so pitiful to see this. I mean, I've seen it with my mother, seen it with my brother, I've seen it with myself, that I would be just like a druggie. I would eat, you know, the, the, the real store-bought pastries where I came from the high-end bakeries to the store-bought, and I would be just like a druggie. I would know, I would know in my head what I had to eat and how much I had to eat before I passed out because I intentionally wanted to. I just wanted to leave life, especially when I came home from school, work and work. So, and this is a pitiful, pitiful, and you know, I had the shakes in the morning after consuming so many, so many, so much, so many things. But the thing here is, if you notice, the allergy gets worse, and of course we think we're all better. And then when we're abstinent, we're all better, we're in a high cloud, we're in the clouds, pink cloud, but you still see, we still have that mental obsession that I can do it this time. And then, of course, we know I have the inability to put it down. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thanks so much, Janice M. Next will we'll be Duel, followed by Tina S. and then Anna K. Good morning, Du. Good morning. This is Duel, Recover Compulsive Reader from New York. Um, I love this paragraph. I didn't want to miss out on this. And, you know, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And yesterday I went to my face-to-face meeting and I, I was confronted with this. You know, I had two gentlemen that were talking about exactly this. You know, there was one gentleman that was talking about he could not stop, not even to save his life. And, you know, and the fact that he kept eating everything and that it became a necessity and he just couldn't stop. And he thought, well, you know, I don't want to give up all of my binge foods. I want to be able to control my binge foods. I want to be able to still have my sweets and not have the consequences of practicing gluttony. And, and you know, and then there was this other gentleman who said, you know, uh, yeah, you can keep eating your foods. You can keep eating those foods. Even though it gets bad and it gets progressively worse, you can keep doing that, you know. And, and, and even though you're going through pain and you're going to go through more pain, you can keep doing that. And, and there's this radical conception that the big book brings about, you know, and it's called entire abstinence. You can arrest this disease. You don't need to go down this path. But that's, that's a conception that, you know, may be too hard for some people because they are so in the necessity of the disease that there's no other way out for them. You know, I know because I went through it myself, you know. I, it took me years to, to get this, you know. But I'm so grateful that I have an option today. You know, it's called entire abstinence. It's called I let go of those key food ingredients, those binge foods that are killing me and taking me down this pro, uh, progression. Because it, it, it never gets better. It gets worse. 
You know, I mean, like, I suffer from obesity. I suffer from, you know, um, uh, not being able to breathe. I suffer from a lot of maladies. Um, it doesn't have to be your experience. It does not have to be your experience. Entire abstinence. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Find out from other recovered people what that is. Um, there is hope out there. You can go blotting out the intolerable situation of, of your situation through gluttony, or you can accept spiritual help. And they say there's no middle of the road. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't not do that. That is not an option that the big book um, offers. It's either accept spiritual help, entire abstinence, or keep doing this and keep getting progressively worse. And with that, I pass. Thanks so much, Duel. Tina S., it's your turn. Good morning. Thanks, Nita. Uh, Tina S., uh, Recover Compulsive Eater Anorexic in Florida. Uh, some great shares this morning. So grateful that I fit here, that I belong. And, uh, you know, I certainly related to the progression, you know, for sure, for sure. And and it was a necessity towards the end of my um eating stuff, whether I was eating and not eating, whatever I was doing to practice this disease of mine. And, and, uh, and it became an isolation. You know, I was an isolated eater. You know, I didn't eat in front of people. And I'm certainly, I'm sure they knew in periods where I had gained 30 pounds. And then I was on that high road when I lost 30 pounds. So the vicious cycle for me was, was just, uh, it was horrendous. You know, it was really horrendous. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I wanted to die towards the end. You know, I, I couldn't live this way any longer. So I thought, you know, because, you know, the dieting didn't work anymore. You know, the, the vicious cycle was every day now. You know, I either ate one day, didn't eat the next, whatever it was that I was practicing to get the result I thought I needed uh, on my own, you know, playing God for sure. And, and, you know, and it didn't work anymore. And people around me didn't know what to do. You know, I, I was exhausting to be around. I was certainly exhausting. You know, when I was depressed, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to participate in my life. And, and people didn't know how to act there, you know. You know, I was, I was young at the time. And so, you know, my parents were like, they, didn't, they were um, baffled. They didn't know what to do. You know, so when I got here, I was, I was actually just willing enough to do a little different you know, and then I saw people, you know, have a life beyond their wildest dreams. And then I was willing to just do the deal. And I loved what was shared, you know, entire abstinence. And I, you know, and, and I thank the people on the line for, for showing me that, you know. Um, I had this thing with sweeteners, you know, where I was drinking diet sodas. And I thought, hey, this is fine. So I haven't been doing it. And it's just amazing in my life, the difference. And, you know, uh, I just want to, I want to be grateful on a daily basis. So I suit up and I show up and, and I just try to give this thing away. But that'll pass. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tina S. Hannah Kay, good morning. You're up. Hannah Kay, just press Can I be heard? One. Now Hi, can. Can you can. Good morning. Hi. Yes. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm Anna Kay from uh, Pennsylvania in the Poconos. Um, very grateful, recovered compulsive overeater. Okay. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I still thought I can control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Well, let's see. I'm 61 now. And I was 29 when I first stepped in the rooms. And this these, this paragraph brought me back to my first marriage and how 
my ex-husband was my high school sweetheart. We got married. I was 23. Within a year, he did not want to be with me anymore. I begged him to stay with me. Why? Because I was so into the food that I could have been maybe a beautiful young wife who who could love her husband easily and, and enjoy our times, you know, intimately. That was impossible. I hated myself. And you know what my periods of sobriety were at that time? Because I was not good at dieting. I did it once at 18 and Weight Watchers, stayed for a microsecond at whatever. I didn't even, I don't think I'd reach gold weight, but something. Uh, but after that, I took speed. Those days, you can go to Queens and get from this doctor who had guards with guns around his office and get liquid speed. And that was great, you know? So you put drops of that into something. And that made me crazy. I would take that. My husband didn't know. So I lost some weight. Oh, yeah, sure, I lost weight. I remember being in the train to go to work, you know, uh, public transportation in New York in the mornings. And I'd imagine myself breaking the windows because I was crazy. So I don't think I was too normal at home. And I couldn't pass food without eating it. My husband had no concept of what a leftover was. Food was not left over in the house. It was gone. It didn't matter if, how much it was. Next morning, it was gone. Well, he had hopes of moments that I would be a woman who could, he can come home to. Because when I got home, all I did was put on my long, this long robe that had rips in it. I, I couldn't let my body show. This is what I was. But he had hopes. He had hopes when he thought me that I got smaller. I remember going to um, where he worked. He worked in an art gallery. And, you know, everybody looked pretty good. And one of his coworkers said, oh, is your wife pregnant? That flipped him out entirely. He does not want to be with me. I was not what a young wife would be, quote, unquote, in the 20s. Anyway, there were periods of sobriety which were a lie. I couldn't pass the M&M's bowl on my piano. I couldn't pass the other thing that was sitting on another part of my apartment. Anywhere I'd go, there'd be some place to grab something to eat because I had no idea how to stop. The only thing that stopped it is when I walked into the rooms at 29 in the middle of the winter with a coat that I couldn't close in the hopes that, we made, my husband made a deal with me. If you lose weight, I'll, we'll, I'll let you try to have a baby. <laughs> That's a way to life. I'm so grateful I'm in the rooms right now. But this is the only thing for me because I have a sick mind. And, and there's no period of sobriety. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anna Kay. And we'll open it up again. Does Chrissy G come back or not? Chrissy? Mr. R? Chrissy G. Okay. Nessa R. Just, just a minute, Kelly please. S. Leah M. Maureen. Kelly S. Wait a minute. I think I'm losing it here. Uh, Chrissy G. and Nessa R. and Camille and Leah and, and Liz. Melissa C. Maura Z. Laura Z. All right, let's stop here. Yes. Thank you, whoever's sticking up for me. <laughs> okay. Um, I still think I've got one person not here. Just one. Give me the person. Chrissy G, Nessa, Camille, Leah M, uh, Maura Z, Lynn S, and Eudini. There was one other. Melissa C. 
say if there's time. Oh, I'll, I know it. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> All right. Chrissy G., good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for your patience. I'm Chrissy G., recovered compulsive overeater and anorexic from New Jersey. Um, I, I was... I was hearing today the part where he talked about being, um, where they, they spoke about him being a hanger-on, not a welcomed one either, for that matter. Because I, I, I believe, and, and through my inventories, I've seen how I became a very pathetic, pathetic character. I, I didn't have the wherewithal or the self-esteem or the confidence in myself to have proper relationships, to have proper work work relationships and work situations. I just, my confidence in myself was so depleted because I couldn't even go a day with keeping a commitment to myself not to binge the next night, that night. And in the morning, I'd have the resolve, and by that night, I would be binging again. So where was my resolve? Where was my confidence in myself? It, I didn't have any. I had no faith in myself. But I still had this ego and this determination to keep up a life, to keep friends, to try to keep the show, try to keep the show going, the facade, even though I knew I, I was down for the count. I was no match against my addiction. And every day I would get up with this resolve, this unbelievable, insane resolve, because there was no evidence to to give me any kind of confidence that I'd get through that day without doing what I did a hundred days before that. It it just there was nothing. But yet I would get up and I'd say today will be the day. And it was such a lie. And it was it it really, you know, keeping up the facade, trying to keep the friendships going for dinner and forgetting, you know, I was so um forgetful all the time because I was so out of it with the food. I was so clouded that I'd forget my money and I'd go out to my friends. I'd be like, oh, I don't have any money. And they'd treat me. And I was just like, I was an unwanted hanger on. And now today to be able to walk with dignity and to remember, and this is, I'm going to close with this, just to remember how grateful I need to be and how in God's grace I am and how much I could rely on myself today because I'm not in the food. I'm not perfect. But I have integrity today. I do what I say most of the time. And I'm just really, really grateful to be here. And with that, I pass. Thanks so much, Chrissy G. Nessa R., good morning. You're up, followed by Camille. Hi, good morning. Vision for you. This is Nessa R., a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. I also want to focus on this um, sentence. I still thought I could control the situation. Who is he trying to convince here? Um, he cannot convince anybody else. Maybe he can convince his wife just out of um, wishful thinking on her part, but he's trying to convince himself. He's trying to convince himself that he doesn't have to give up the substance that helps him cope with uh, being restless, irritable, and discontented, just as I couldn't bear to part with the foods that, um, that had helped me cope for so long you know like if I don't have those foods I how would I manage how would I manage and you know I'm told here something that was such a revelation for me on on page 30 in the big book it says here the idea that someday he will 
control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. So it doesn't say here that we want to give up the drinking. It says here, I want to have it and enjoy it. I want to have my proverbial cake and eat it too. And the truth is, as we um, hear so often in these lines, you know, when I control my food, I cannot enjoy it. And when I enjoy my food, I cannot control it. You know, when I'm enjoying it, I'm in full uh, blown um, allergy outbreak. You know, I am experiencing, you know, the phenomenon of craving that makes it impossible for me to stop eating until I run out of food or, I mean, I don't know, some external event happens that makes me stop. Um, and if I'm trying to control it, I, I'm probably more restless, irritable, and discontented than ever, you know, because, because life is happening and I have no alternative means of coping. Um, you know, now, um, fast forward to recovery, I'm not trying to control the food. Um, the food is not controlling me. The food is just food. And, you know, I must say, I don't know if this is kind of sacrilegious to, to, to say on the line, uh, especially for a recovered person, but I enjoy my food. When I sit down to a meal, um, I enjoy what I eat. I eat what's mine. I eat my portion, and then I'm done, and I'm finished. Um, you know, it's, it's truly like, you know, what I said yesterday, this is total um, peace with food. I have made peace with food. How? Um, because I put down all the foods that I never thought I'd be able to give up. Um, and then uh, following the instructions that are outlined in this book, this book to work the steps has made me free of that obsession, of that need to eat or control. Um, so food is just that, food. I can sit down to a meal and enjoy it and, and finish, and I have energy to continue on with whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, and now um, I don't have that obsession, hmm. you know, thank you, that one day I should be able to control and enjoy my drinking because it's not necessary anymore. And thank you. With that, I pass. Thanks so much. Uh, Camille, you're up, followed by Leah. Um, Camille? Let's move on. We've got a lot of people here. Uh, Leah M. Good morning. Good morning. And it is Camille. I got it. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. That's okay. Good morning. I, too, want to hone in on the sentence. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Um, he's coming off this incredible bout of um, alcohol, and he's still thinking, even in the face of that, that he can control what his, the situation, he can control his drinking. Um, I had this amazing ability. I mean, my husband doesn't have this ability. My daughters don't have this ability to behave and then to act as if it never occurred. It's as though a big wall would come mm -hmm. down. Um, that never happened. And now I got my act together and I was going to power through this disease once again and diet and and restrict and diet and restrict and diet and restrict until I could get back to where I was before I went on a two week binge. And I would go through this and act like everything was normal while the people around me were amazed because I could go high, high and low, low. 
and they just couldn't understand like how I could flip the switch so quickly. Um, so they lived with a crazy woman, and um, it brings me pain when I look back at her to think that I was so delusional that I really thought I had it. I had it. I didn't have it licked ever, but I had it. I had it good enough that I could get it together enough to be okay enough to survive another day. And um, it's not the way it is for me today. And as I um, dive into my program and put myself in the middle and wake up early to listen to this meeting, um, what's happening is I'm seeing how um, the only control I have is my relationship with God. I do have control over that. I can bring God in uh, purposefully during, my, it, during and into my day. I can ask God for um, intuitive thoughts. I can ask God for decisions. I can ask God for inspiration. I can remember to pause. So there are things I can control today. And that's what I want to control. You know, I want my relationship with God today more than anything else. And when I have that, my relationship with food and with others and with life just just works. It works without me working it. So I am privileged to be here and to be a listener uh, this morning. Thank you. Thanks so much, Camille. Leah M., good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Anita. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And they also, he also uses the word routine and required in this paragraph. And I identify with that. You know, initially, my overeating, um, you know, it seemed like a pastime, you know, to, to fill um, what might be boring hours or lonely hours, you know, um, wasn't a very busy household that I grew up in. So I just thought it was like that, you know, every now and then. But as I reached uh, high school age, and particularly when I began to drive and I was able to have more independence, um, the binging was choking out the rest of my life. It was like a noose gradually tightening tightening itself around my neck um, where, yes, I went to school, um, but, you know, there were hours that I spent in the evening binging in my car in high school. And then there were days, and this began in elementary school, where I was deliberately skipping school in order to binge. But this began to creep into every aspect of my life, and it began to interfere um, more intensively in my schooling, in my relationships, in my friendships, at home. Um, you know, and, I, and for a long time, I rationalized my binging by saying, you know, I won't binge um, if things will change. You know, if my parents will change, if I get into a certain college, if I have certain relationships, if life becomes more exciting, uh, eventually, you know, if my husband was more supportive. But I realized that, you know, in retrospect, this is written in hindsight, it didn't matter what was going on in my life, um, the food had become a necessity. And of course, 
I was binging and using greater amounts due to my increased tolerance and my increased capacity. I mean, I could plow through bags and bags and boxes, a dozen donuts, no problem. <laughs> Add a dozen bagels with marge, you know, with butter on top of that, sure. A gallon of ice cream, yeah, you got it. You know, throughout the day, of course, the consequences were becoming worse. My body was wearing out at times. I needed to kind of take a nap to recover, but the frequency, the duration and the intensity of the binges was it was increasing and it was choking out my life and it was choking out me because at this point the abnormal became the normal this was regular routine on the way to work stop off at several drive-throughs on the way to work stop off at certain drugstores, load up, make time in my morning for binging, make time during my lunch hour for binging. Um, so <laughs> this became regular, it became routine, it became necessary. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, I think we could get in just two more. Especially if it's, uh, I'm sorry, we have four here, and are we already, I think we can, we're going to work in Maura Z and Lynn S, and the rest, I'm so sorry. Go ahead, Maureen. I mean, um, Maura. Good Maura morning, Anita. Can I hear <laughs> Yes, yes. So, um, thank you for your service. And, yes, we could be a motley bunch of times. So, um, Maura Z here recovered in Virginia, gratefully, gratefully so. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. So what comes to my mind is, when I think of luxuries, like when I think about what I can afford, it's making a choice. Can I afford that? I'll make a choice to go ahead and get that luxury item. When it's not a choice, when it's not a luxury, it stops being a choice. I am, as I've heard on the line, biologically mandated to pick up. When I got past that point of, oh, it's nice to go out for lunch with the ladies, I can have a dessert, you know, I'm out to lunch, there's my excuse, I can have a dessert. And that was a luxury. When it stopped being a luxury, I stopped having the ability to choose. It was going to be that I was going to pick up. I've heard and I've said in the past for years that sugar was my drug of choice. Again, I come back to there was no choice. I was going to pick up. I wasn't choosing sugar. My allergy had been triggered. The obsession of the mind took over. And I was going to pick up. It was a fait accompli. There was no way I was not going to pick up. Thankfully, somebody opened this big book and helped me to study it. And I discovered my allergy of the body. I discovered I had an obsession of the mind. And through working these 12 steps in order, as they're laid out in this little chip of a book, I became recovered. And I am so grateful today that I have the choice to do 10 steps, but they're no longer a choice because now I am mandated to do my 10 steps every day so that I stay clean and I stay connected above everything else. I stay connected 
to my higher power. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you so much. Um, Lynn S., if you can speak for one minute, that's about all we have for you. Okay, thanks. This is Lynn S., a recovering compulsive overeater from Toronto, Canada. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. It made me think this morning almost like I had three phases of my, my eating, the luxury, the necessity, and then when the food turned on me. And this is the part before the food turns on me. It's a necessity. I can't get through the day without doing this. It's kind of taken over, but it's still working for me. It is still working for me. And what also got me is I thought I could control the situation, but not with hope, not like before, oh, yeah, fit for life, this is it, this is going to save my life, or this is something else, this is going to do it this time. It wasn't that, and it wasn't Oprah, and it wasn't, you know, I'm just going to sign up for Nutrisystem. It wasn't that. It was the desperate. I still think I can control this somehow. I wasn't hopeful. It was a desperation. My parents might have been hopeful. Maybe this time, dear God, maybe something will help her. I wasn't hopeful. I was desperate. And I remember living like this, and in my last binge, that eight-year relapse period, many times I was in this before the food actually turned on me and stopped working. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Beautiful. You did that very well. <laughs> I, I want to thank everyone who shared, and I'm sorry we didn't get to the last two or three, especially because I know one for sure wasn't in the right order. But please join us, if you can, for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following closing. And we'll now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And will Dion R. please read a vision for you for us? Thank you. Yes. Good morning, Anita R. Hi, my name is Dion R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if our own if I'm sorry, if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear the way away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Now pass.